and welcome to That Movie Sounds Gay, a podcast all about movies that are kinda gay. Or maybe they're not, but they probably are, at least a little. Yes, this podcast is generally not going to be looking at movies that are explicitly gay. Instead, its focus will be more on movies that have a homoerotic undercurrent to them, whether intentional or not. Or sometimes for movies that are just interesting to discuss from a gay point of view. I'll be looking at old movies, new movies, animated movies, live-action movies, good movies, and kind of bad movies. Action, horror, comedy, romance, you name it. But one thing they all have in common is, they sound gay. On this episode of That Movie Sounds Gay, we'll be discussing the 1989 film The Killer, directed by John Woo. I mentioned in the previous episode that after discussing Chang Chi, it seemed fitting to next look at a film directed by John Woo. One of the reasons was that, to me, John Wu and Chang Chi are quite easily comparable, even if there are also definitely things that separate their styles in general sense of aesthetics. Another was that earlier in his career, John Wu worked as Chang Chi's assistant director at Shaw Brothers on several productions, such as The Boxer from Shantung, The Water Margin and Blood Brothers. In this episode, I'll be coming back to the connection between these two filmmakers, as well as John Woo's influences, both Chinese and global. However, of course, I also want to talk about John Woo more specifically, and this film specifically, and not to get too distracted or sidetracked too quickly. John Woo is a pretty interesting director to me in general, since he started to make films at the beginning of his career in Hong Kong, then moved into making films in Hollywood, then returned to making films in Asia, starting with the two-part war epic Red Cliff, and then his most recent release, Manhunt, which featured cast members from China, Japan and South Korea. He has been active since the late 60s and continues to have projects that he's working on, even including a remake of a film that I'm about to talk about. The Killer was released after A Better Tomorrow 2. Both A Better Tomorrow films were widespread financial and critical successes, and The Killer also enjoyed a positive response. It's definitely of the heroic bloodshed subgenre, and like John Woo has influences both inside and outside of China and Hong Kong, likewise the killer and John Woo's filmography as a whole has influenced and caught the attention of both Asian and Western filmmakers. As well as John Woo's influences and in turn was influenced by him and the theme of heroic bloodshed, I want to talk about the themes of duality, redemption and of course strong male friendships in the killer. But first, I'm going to give a quick rundown of the plot, and like always, this will contain spoilers. Also, a lot happens in The Killer, so there are going to be things that I'm going to have to leave out or just go over pretty briefly. I'm going to try to focus more on the aspects of the story that I think are the most important and relevant to this podcast. But yeah, without further ado, this is the basic plot of The Killer. The film opens in a church with images of the Virgin Mary and the cross illuminated by candlelight. Well, the outside is dark, cold and barren. The lead character, a killer for hire named Ajong, played by Chayun Fat, is joined by his close friend and triad member Fong Se, played by Chu Kong. Fong Se hands Ajong a briefcase that contains information on his next job, which is to be his last. Ajong goes to a nightclub where a woman named Jenny, played by Sally Ye, is singing a very nice song, and as he walks around slowly, taking in the room, he finds his target. The music stops abruptly as gunshots start to fire. Ajong takes out his target, but the nightclub and the man's security are quite impressive. 
A John grabs the nightclub singer. He doesn't shoot her. Instead, he pushes her away from the gunfire. But after being wounded in the back by his enemies, he retaliates and the muzzle flash from his gun blinds her. Back at the church, Ajong has the bullets removed from his back by Feng Se, and in a hospital, Jenny is told by a doctor that her corneas have been badly damaged, but that there is some hope that she can get a transplant. A detective questions her on her experience, if she can remember the hitman's face, and she can, but she is also traumatised and shaken by the experience. Some time later, Jenny has continued to work as a nightclub performer, and unbeknownst to her, Ajong comes and watches her from the audience. One night, some men attack her, but are deterred by Ajong coming to her aid. She is panicked at first, but he reassures her by telling her that he's a fan of her singing and has been watching and waiting for an opportunity to do something good for her in return. He walks her home, and when they arrive, Ajong is made aware to the extent of her condition. He finds out that she can clearly remember the hitman's face, but he is also consumed by guilt for her being injured so badly in his last job. This motivates him to take on one final, for real last job, in order to raise the money to have her receive her transplant. He also starts a relationship with her, all while she doesn't really know who he is. We are also introduced at this point to Detective Li Ying, played by Danny Lee, who is quickly established as somewhat of a hot-headed, thinks-with-his-hands type of cop. He was working undercover, but this ended in him shooting the suspect in a crowded tram, causing the hostage the suspect had taken to have a fatal heart attack. Meanwhile, Ajong's for real last job this time takes place at a boat show, where he is spotted by Detective Lee, who has been assigned to protect his target and the many other important VIPs and guests that are attending. He completes his job and starts to make his escape by boat, but is pursued by the detective and other officers. However, even though he manages to outmaneuver them, it becomes clear that he has been set up by his triad boss, Wong Hoi. Several other hitmen appear to take shots at him, not caring about who gets hurt in the crossfire. A little girl is hit by a stray bullet and Ajong protects her from further harm while shooting back. He manages to make it to a car and escapes, taking her to the hospital. Li Ying pursues him with his partner and the pair have a standoff in the hospital while the girl gets medical attention. She is saved and Ajong escapes, but the confrontation has left a strong impression on Li Ying, who, in his description to a police sketch artist, describes Ajong quite romantically, clearly respecting the noble hitman who went out of his way to rescue a child, even if it's also his job to bring him in. Although he survives this attempt on his life, Wong Hoi is determined to finally get rid of Ajong. He even employs the help of Ajong's close friend, Feng Se, although Feng Se tries to plead with him not to go through with it. However, Ajong proves difficult to kill. He survives her next attempt too, badly injuring Wong Hoi, killing some henchmen, but sparing Feng Se. Li Ying and his partner are closing in on Ajong. Li Ying has access to Jerry and has told her that Ajong is the same man as the one who blinded her in the nightclub. When Li Ying's partner is killed during his pursuit of Feng Se, Li Ying is devastated and it spurs him on to confront Ajong. The two face off, guns drawn, but before they can battle, there is another ambush by the triad, and the pair are forced to flee with Ajong injured. At this point, the pair start to bond. Li Ying patches up Ajong's wounds and they realise that they have some things in common in regard to their views of the world and their respect for each other even though they happen to be on different sides of the law. 
As the pair bond, the scene changes to a church from earlier and a final confrontation between Ajong, Li Ying and Wong Hoi begins. Ajong and Li Ying wait in the church for Fong Si, who has promised to deliver money to Ajong for Jenny's cornea transplant. However, Wong Hoi again shows his lack of respect for the gangster bonds of brotherhood in general sort of code of chivalry, I guess, by showing up with a badly beaten Fong Si, who is in such a state that he begs Ajong to kill him instead of letting him die like a dog. The final shootout is intense, with the church being shot to bits, there's fire and blood. Ajong manages to shoot Wong Hoi, injuring him, but in turn, in a move that mirrors what happened to Jenny, Wong Hoi injures him, blinding him with bullets to his eyes. As Ajong falls down screaming, Li Yin catches him and tries to restrain him from thrashing about in agony, but it's no good. As Ajong succumbs to his injuries, he and Jenny call out to each other, trying to reach out for each other, but neither having their sight, Ajong dies without being able to reach her arms. A police squadron finally arrives, and knowing that he has no chance of escaping, since he is badly injured already, Wong Hoi frantically begs the police to take him into custody. Despite previously saying to Ajong that he believes in justice, law and order, and that he doesn't want to kill, Li Ying takes matters into his own hands and shoots Wong Hoi dead before they can safely arrest him. As Li Ying grieves for Ajong, lying exhausted and overwhelmed on the ground, the police surround him and the film ends with a flashback of Ajong playing the harmonica as he looks out onto the church. I'm sorry if that was a little long, it seems like as I go on with this, the films I'm covering are becoming harder and harder to summarise. I guess Rope had a pretty simple plot in comparison. But yeah, I've received feedback saying it's helpful to have these summaries, and to be honest I kind of enjoy writing them, so I'm going to keep doing them for now. Anyway, before going into some of the things behind the scenes in John Woo more generally, I want to talk about some of the aspects in the movie on the screen that I think make this film quite interesting in terms of gay appeal or gay subtext. The first and perhaps the most obvious thing that comes to my mind when thinking about this aspect of the killer is the relationship between the two main characters. There's a notable duality between them. They're on different sides of the law, yet there's this mutual respect and admiration between them, sort of like they recognise each other as being worthy adversaries. Due to the film's other relationships between its male characters, where there's a strong emphasis placed on subordinates and their seniors, this sort of work-partner dynamic, I think it invites us to think that if Ajong and Li Ying were both cops or both hitmen, they would make a really formidable pair, but because they're on opposite sides, they're sort of star-crossed and destined to be enemies. Yet, when they actually talk to each other in the scene where they've escaped a triad ambush and Li Ying tends to Ajong's injuries, they see see this connection in each other, and in the finale they fight on the same side to take on Wong Hoi. Almost like, despite the fact they should be enemies, their bond supersedes this. While on the surface they are quite different, I think the film does a good job of showing that they have some similarities in their personalities as well. Most notably, both Ajong and Li Ying are shown to have an underlying moral code to them, one that means they will do things that angers their superiors if they think it's what's called for or what is right. This is shown when Ajong rescues a child and brings her to the hospital during the first triad ambush against him, and also when Li Ying goes too far and shoots a suspect on a packed tram instead of attempting to bring him in peacefully. 
So it's kind of like a Jong is too good to be a triad hitman and Li Yang is too wild to be a cop. I think this strong bond makes it quite easy to see the relationship through a gay lens. After all, it's an intense male-male relationship that doesn't feel quite accurate to call a friendship, at least to me. They don't actually spend a whole lot of time developing a friendship between them. It's a bit more instinctual than that, or I guess symbolic. In one scene, Lei Ying gazes at several police sketches of Ajong's face, obsessing over the complicated morality of the mysterious hitman. He seems to be really enamoured by the idea of Ajong. The scene where Lei Ying and Ajong are alone together and Lei Ying helps him with his injuries happens at around the 1 hour and 20 minute mark. This is in a movie that's about 1 hour and 50 minutes long. So it's pretty late on in the story. To me, it's also one of the most intimate scenes in the movie, not just because of what's physically involved, Ajong's shirt is torn and bloodied, and he bites down on a branch to help him stand the pain as Lee Yang cauterizes his wound. This part is very similar to an earlier scene in the church, where Fong Si takes care of Ajong's injuries in the church after the initial shootout. Besides all this, well, it feels intimate because it sort of functions as some downtime before the big climax. It also happens after another big action scene. It's a rare example in the film where the two main characters can talk to each other without the presence or the threat of guns being waved about and shot at them. Besides the relationship between Lei Ying and Da Zhong, the film also features other noticeable relationships between its male characters, such as A Zhong and Feng Se, and Li Yang and his partner Sang Ye. A Zhong and Feng Se are the pair that I think have the strongest bond besides Li Yang and A Zhong, and the two spend more time on screen together than A Zhong and Li Yang do. As I mentioned, Feng Se tends to A Zhong's wounds in the church early on in the film, and the scene is similar to what happens later on between A Zhong and Li Yang. There's also how Fong Se is caught between his personal loyalty and friendship with Ajong and his status as a triad member. He obviously doesn't feel the same kind of personal loyalty or friendship to Wong Hoi as he does to Ajong, but as Wong Hoi is his boss, he feels pressure to obey him even though it goes against what he wants to do as a person. Fong Se is a pretty tragic character actually. I think he's portrayed pretty sympathetically and the way he can't quite commit to just running off with Ajong and being his sidekick, like I think he probably would want to, is quite sad. It also makes him seem like he's not quite heroic like Ajong is. He's not quite enough of a renegade for that. But he is shown to have more sympathetic and softer qualities than a character like Wong Hoi who is pretty out and out villainous. To bring back a source that was useful to me in the previous episode, Yang and Yin, Gender and Chinese Cinema, there is reference to how relationships like this between the male characters in John Woo's movies, particularly in his heroic bloodshed movies, can be viewed as containing homoerotic elements because of their intensity and the general romantic feel to his movies. John Woo says this is unintentional, but if viewers see this in his films, is their privilege to bring whatever interpretation to the movies that they see. I said this in the previous episode too, but similarly to DeLong's response to people reading into the relationship between him and David Chang, like their on-screen and off-screen relationships, 
I find it quite nice, I guess, that John Woo isn't just like, no, it's not gay, how dare you? And that he doesn't appear to find it insulting or demeaning to the manliness of his movies. It's unfortunate, but I think when this element in his films are brought up, sometimes it can be used as a way to sort of snicker at them, like it does demean them. Whereas even if it had been intentional, I don't see why there being a romantic element between his characters, like a Jong and Li Ying, should take away from that. I've mentioned it a few times now, and so it seems right to go into the specifics of what is meant by heroic bloodshed. Heroic bloodshed is a pretty interesting subgenre, both in what it includes and its origins. The term was apparently coined in the 1980s by Rick Baker, the CEO of Eastern Heroes, which started as a magazine to promote and celebrate martial arts cinema to English-speaking readers, and is now also a website selling a variety of memorabilia and books, as well as promoting various events and meetups. Basically, a heroic bloodshed movie can be classified as a film where there's a lot of bloodshed, heroically. The plot will typically centre around cops and gangsters, there's a lot of dramatic gun violence that is heavily stylized, and themes such as brotherhood, redemption, and friends to enemies or enemies to friends frequently come up. Although originally referring to the films of Hong Kong directors John Woo and Ringo Lam in particular, and it's true that it's still definitely most strongly associated with Hong Kong action cinema in general, several films from outside Hong Kong and indeed out of Asia in general have been compared to or tied with heroic bloodshed. Some of these, like the John Wick movies or some of Quentin Tarantino's work, obviously have influences from John Woo's heroic bloodshed movies. But there are others like The Godfather, The Deer Hunter and First Blood, which predate John Woo's first heroic bloodshed film, A Better Tomorrow. However, I don't want to diminish or play down the fact that John Woo was unquestionably a major force in popularising this type of action movie. But yeah, the reason I wanted to specifically talk about heroic bloodshed on this podcast is that I think the subgenre is kind of interesting to think about in terms of gay appeal, or at least homoerotic appeal. I mentioned before that the close, intense bonds between John Woo's heroes were noted by some audiences and critics to be homoerotic. There's an article about this specifically on one of John Woo's other heroic bloodshed movies, Hard Boiled, wherein it mentions the idea that in society men cannot openly love each other or be affectionate with each other. That's not manly. But what is manly? Shooting each other. It draws attention to the idea that men expressing emotions besides anger really, or at least any more sensitive emotions, makes them less masculine. Heroic bloodshed is therefore pretty interesting because it is very macho, but it's also very emotional. Sure, the emotions involved can include anger, but there's also intense love and loyalty shown between the characters, generally male, and even if those characters aren't meant to be gay, I think seeing men display that depth of emotion toward each other, even outside of an explicitly gay relationship, is quite appealing. Also, while this definitely predates Hong Kong cinema and the term heroic bloodshed, I think there's a historical and narrative precedent to this idea of two male soulmates or even lovers dying in a field of blood together. And for me at least, this kind of ties to the gay appeal of heroic bloodshed. 
There are a few fairly well-known examples of his precedent, such as Nisus and Euryalus in the Aeneid, a pair of lovers who serve under Aeneas and die together in battle. They're described for their valour, but also their love and loyalty to each other. There's also the Sacred Band of Thebes, a strand of a Theban army that consisted of a group of 150 male-male lovers. It also makes me think of some of the work of Yuko Mishima and his general sensibilities and interests. I'm not saying that these examples fall into the subgenre, but it'd be a bit anachronistic to say the least. But it's just notable to me how the romanticising of death and violence, while not trying to like sanitise it and make it all nice and cosy, has come up time and time again in history, specifically where gay lovers or two very close sworn brother type pairings are concerned. I mentioned before that I wanted to talk a bit about some of John Wu's influences as well. There's an interesting mix. As well as Chang Chu, John Wu is a big fan of French New Wave cinema. And in terms of The Killer, one of the most notable influences comes from Jean-Pierre Melville, in particular his 1967 film Le Samurai. He is also an admirer of westerns, and there is definitely some nods to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in his heroic bloodshed movies. Outside of the world of films, it's not hard to see that his Christianity has also heavily influenced his filmmaking. It's not really subtle. In my plot summary for The Killer, I noted that there are various scenes in a church which is warmly lit by candles with crucifixes and the Virgin Mary on display. Doves and pigeons also fly about. There is a strong theme of redemption, forgiveness and trying to overcome one's sins to do good. But yeah, because I can't help myself, I want to wrap this up by talking a bit about John Wu and Chang Chu and go into my thoughts on the film in general. It shouldn't be surprising from what I've said so far that I really like this movie and I also like John Wu's heroic bloodshed movies in general. I haven't seen all of his films, but the ones that I have I found really enjoyable. I'm not sure which I would say is my favourite, Face Off is incredibly fun, but I'm a sucker for the themes of duality and redemption that are in The Killer. I also recently rewatched A Better Tomorrow, and while I liked it originally, I actually enjoyed it more the second time round. Perhaps seeing D. Long in so many Chang Chia films and then in A Better Tomorrow has made me a bit biased. Speaking about his relationship with John Woo, Chang Chia said that he didn't think that he had much direct influence on John Woo, that John Woo's tastes and any similar themes were just due to them having similar interests. It's true that there are definitely similarities between the two. Chang Chia made many films with historical settings, but he also made many that were set in the present day with gangsters and guns and such. They also both tend to emphasise brotherhood and strong male friendships. Yet there are differences too. When I was re-watching The Killer, I couldn't help but think that if I didn't know anything about John Woo's personal life, I wouldn't have taken what I saw in his movies and interpreted it as probably coming from a gay man. I wouldn't have ruled it out, of course, but I also wasn't surprised when I read that he was straight. I'm not 100% sure why this is. I thought about it a bit, and I guess it sort of comes down to there being plausible heterosexual interpretations and motivators for his characters as well as just his general aesthetics not lingering on male beauty in the same way as I would expect from a filmmaker who was exploring the themes that he does in reference to what he finds sexually or romantically appealing. On the other hand, when I see Chang Chia's movies, 
It's kind of hard for me to watch them and think we didn't come from someone who was attracted to men. So yeah, it's not that I think this means that genre's movies don't have any gay appeal to them. In fact, I do. If I didn't, I wouldn't have chosen The Killer to do an episode on. However, when John Woo says that it wasn't intentional, I can believe it. Thank you for listening and I hope you enjoyed episode 6 of That Movie Sounds Gay. If you're a fan of John Woo, let me know and tell me what your favourites are. I'm curious to hear what other people's thoughts are about the gay appeal of his movies, since it does seem to be something that is noted fairly frequently, despite it reportedly not being intentional. Before I go, I also wanted to apologise for the delay in posting this. As I mentioned on my Twitter, my work schedule has been particularly hectic recently, and when I get home after a long day of work, it can be hard to get my brain to do anything really productive. I've given it some thought, and since I don't foresee my schedule becoming significantly more lax anytime soon, for the remainder of this batch of episodes, I'll be posting on a bi-weekly instead of a weekly basis. When I make the next batch of episodes, I'm going to give myself more of a backlog so I can post them weekly. That way, I won't feel pressured by a deadline, since I want this to remain as a sort of fun hobby I'm doing rather than it feeling like work or like I have to rush to finish it and then I won't be happy with it anyway. You can find me on Twitter where my username is ThatMovieSounds or send me an email at ThatMovieSoundsGay at gmail.com. So join me in two weeks time for episode 7 where I'll be looking at a film that's a bit different from the previous ones in this series since it actually does contain explicit themes of sexuality and even sex between men but it's also one that I don't think is most commonly thought of as being a gay movie. The film I'm talking about is a 1969 film, Midnight Cowboy.